All right. Welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have conversations with individuals who are building accessible products or businesses, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but give them a platform to share their ideas and amplify their voice. Today, I'm joined by Kim Knoxteed. Uh, Kim has a PhD in special education and policy from the University of Kansas, was a Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Public Policy Fellow, a disability policy advisor in the U.S. House of Representatives, and then later in the U.S. Senate. In January of 2021, Kim was appointed as the first ever director of disability policy for the Domestic Policy Council for the Biden-Harris administration. Following her experience in the White House, Kim was a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, director of the Disability Economic Justice Team, and director of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. Now she runs Unlock Access, an accessibility and disability policy consulting firm. And all of those experiences have led you to this moment and appearance on the prestigious AdaptX podcast. Congratulations. Uh, But all jokes aside, uh, thank you for uh, being here and your willingness to have this conversation. I'm really looking forward to learning from you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I similarly pursued a degree in special ed uh, before pivoting to uh, the career that I have now. So maybe what initially influenced you um, to advocate on behalf of people with disabilities or pursue a degree in education? And then maybe uh, what experiences led you to pivot away from the classroom? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, my background doesn't seem, you know, traditional by any means, seeing that I started as a teacher and, you know, ended up in the White House and (laughs) now doing this. But, um, you know, when I look back on it and I'm asked this question a lot, like what got you into it? I, um, I ride horses. And uh, when I was in high school, um, the barn I rode at actually had a hippotherapy program. So therapeutic riding program. And so I spent a lot of my weekends volunteering at that program because I had experience with horses. So the physical therapist would be with the kids and then I would lead the horses. And I loved doing that. It was so much fun. Um, It never really seemed like work. I really enjoyed it. And I thought, this is the career I'll have. I'm going to go. I'm going to become a physical therapist. I'm going to open a hippotherapy program. Um, as I got older, I realized that's actually very hard to do. <laughs> um, it's also very expensive. Um, horses are not an inexpensive uh, thing to have, um, especially trying to run a program like that. So what I realized is what I really enjoyed was actually working with kids. Um, and as my career went on, you know, also something I also realized is I so identified with the kids because I have chronic illnesses. I didn't really come into that identity until a little bit later in my life, but I was identified with many of the kids as well and saw myself sort of in them and working with them. So that really drove me into a degree in special education. I loved working with kids. I loved teaching. Um, I actually taught for four years um, and loved it. I taught K through six um, students with disabilities. Um, I was in uh, Kansas City um, because I was working on my uh, graduate degree as well um, at the University of Kansas. And I I loved it for a while. (laughs) Um, It was great. But I really started to see the ableism and the racism words I have now to describe what I was witnessing um, that was so embedded in the system um, and how my students were treated. And that started to drive me away from wanting to just be a teacher. And I started to see these systemic problems. And like the kids I taught had pretty severe mental health. 
diagnoses and had been deemed, I'm putting, using air quotes, you know, the problem behavior kids, which was such a terrible way to describe them because it was the system and the structure and the context that was the problem. It had nothing to do with them. And at fourth grade, I had other teachers coming up to me saying that the kids were going to end up in jail. Why was I bothering? I was crushed by that. And I realized like I needed to do something different. Um, as one teacher in my early 20s, that was <laughs> this was not the path to like success. Um, I left teaching, um, got a PhD to really dig into kind of systems change and, and how to make a difference. And that sort of set me on the trajectory that I'm on now. That has some similarities or parallels to like the social model of disability, I suppose. Like in the, yeah, in the course we teach, we start the, uh, the first modules on the social versus mm-hmm. the medical model. Cause I think most people in the fitness space view the impairments associated with disabilities and they want to yeah. learn about the diagnoses, et cetera. When ultimately we talk about how you're training the individual in front of you, you're not training a, a label. So, um, I think that totally. social lens is a, is an interesting perspective and I don't think many people are exposed to it unless they're like in this space. Yeah. Um, so I basically agree. that your disability is a product of your environment, not necessarily yeah. physical characteristics that you possess. So, um, that's, I think is a, is an important, uh, lens to see a lot of these things through. Yeah. Um, when you were in your PhD program, is that when you were first introduced to, uh, more like government, uh, responsibilities or policy? It is, it is. And to be honest, coming from education, and you may have seen the same thing is I really thought the way to make change at a systems level was actually kind of state because so much of education is governed at the state and local level. And so my thought was, okay, I'm going to go get a PhD, then I'll go back to like the state or local level, and I'll start making change in kind of the education system that way. But as I took classes, and this is the thing about the PhD, I learned a lot, but what I actually really learned is how to think differently. And like the content was great. Um, I learned the University of Kansas has one of the top programs in special education in the country. So I learned from some of the best faculty that are out there. But I really learned how to just think about problems and come up with different solutions and apply different lenses over everything. And that was the skill that like skill set is, I think, what actually gave me what I needed to be successful in the future more than anything. But I started to think about was state like was the state and local system and the levers was that really what I wanted to be pulling on for policy? I did an internship um, at the Kansas State Department of Education. Loved the people, loved the work. Realized that not for me, um, and had the opportunity to apply for the Kennedy Fellowship that you mentioned in my intro. Um, which anyone listening who ever wants to get into policy, I highly, highly recommend it. It's really the only fellowship for the federal government that is focused on disability. You can be, you know, in your mid-career, you can be early career, you can be late career, you can be a person with a disability, you can be a family member. If you want to know disability policy, you should apply. And um, I can send you the link for the show notes. Um, it's it's a really great uh, fellowship. And I thought there was no way I'd get it, right? It's one person a year. Um So applied and then a very quick turnaround did an interview in December, like middle December. They told me the next day that I got the fellowship and I needed to be in DC again, like moved to DC by beginning of January. Um, So my husband and I went back to Kansas, packed up our things Mm -hmm. and we've been in DC ever since. 
So yeah, we work with uh, work with the University of Kansas's uh, yes. Down syndrome program oh, yeah. on a uh, on a research project. They have a, a really strong uh, team of professors there that okay. have a lot of publications on Down syndrome and physical yeah. activity. So working with a couple professors there, that's been a great project. But what was your what was your pitch for the Kennedy Fellow? Were you did you have to present a project or a specific idea? Or? You sort of just write. Um, uh, it's like a cover letter, but not. It's like four pages, just like why should it be you? <laughs> Which is so mm-hmm. weird. Um, and I really laid out that, and this has actually been not to be too academic but um, that I see the value in connecting research policy and practice. This has been like my conceptual framework actually since my PhD program and something that I still use sort of everywhere I go. And I see it, people joke I should get a tattoo of this, but I see it as like a, a triangle almost, but like um, where research policy and practice all have like bilat- um, uh, like arrows, bi-directional arrows to them. Everything is connected and one isn't elevated over the other. And, you know, research connects to policy and they drive, but they drive each other. You can't have one without the other. And the practice is there too. What's happening on the ground is driving the others. And this is true no matter where, where you work, whether it's education, whether it's in the corporate sector, whether it's in nonprofit, whether it's in sport, whether, you know, no matter what it is, this can be applied. And so it's sort of a lens to look at everything through. And um, that that was sort of the pitch I made. And um, they seemed to like it. <laughs> uh, how long was that? That program was that a year or two? It was a year, um, and so I, my, the, the placement I chose was with, was with um, U.S. Senator Patty Murray on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Um, it was a great experience. Um, it was in 2016, um, which uh, there was working for a Democrat. Everyone was thinking, um, it had very different thoughts about how 2016 would go. So there was a lot of different momentum when that year came to a close. But I did have the opportunity to work on the team that got to dig into nominations. And so um, that was really fun. Learned a lot about research um, at the end of that um, from a nomination standpoint. Um, And then I stayed on the Hill. I went over to um, Bobby Scott's office on the House side. So I I was then getting Senate and House experience. Um, And Mr. Scott was a fantastic member to work for. He is a lawyer. And he loves to dig into like all the nitty gritty details. So you have to write really long memos and have all the, everything cited. So like my research brain loved that. Um, and he was really trying to emerge as like a leader in disability. And so really be, being able to build up a portfolio for him was super fun. One thing that, and I don't have the first ounce of experience in, in anything government or policy wise, but it seems like it ebbs and flows obviously with the political situation. Um, So is it frustrating to have DI initiatives come to the forefront of people's thinking and then have them pushed back? And then is it almost like every four years, some of the work you do is like reversed? It can. I mean, it is ebbs and flows. I will say the nice thing about disability and add accessibility because they're a little bit different. Um, They, they're not as like political, big P political in the sense of like Democrat, Republican, because they're a little bit more bipartisan. And so some of the work halts, I'll say actually during election years, the work really halts across the board because everyone goes away. So that's almost like worse than whoever is in charge. 
um, because everyone's focused on other things. And so like this year will be the hardest for like any work, you know, 2016, 2020, you know, those years were, well, 2020 was <laughs> odd just generally because um, of the pandemic, but those years are the hardest because of just work doesn't really happen. Um, it's, and so you sort of have to halt all the good things you're doing, redirect and then pick them back up. But the good thing is, you know, there's other ways to go about making change. And I think that's where over time, you know, spending time in government, being able to see House, Senate, White House, I started to see what are the other levers outside of those really traditional policy like lenses and then how else can you actually make change and like lasting change? And that's where I started to get more interested in um, how to help others to, to start to do that. What projects during that experience did you find to be most impactful or that you're kind of most proud of working on? Yeah. Oh gosh. There's so many. I mean, it's funny because it's always like one step forward, two steps back in policy. Um, but there's definitely projects that, I'm really proud of and excited about still. Um, and again, it takes so much time because government is like the slow moving machine. <laughs> um, I would say one of the things I'm most proud of is uh, the work on subminimum wage. And so I think so many people don't realize that it is legal to pay disabled workers less than the minimum wage, not like some states have $15, so you're paid, you know, $10. No, it's it's legal to pay workers with disabilities a penny an hour. And that is that for so long was sort of kept in the shadows. And there's been really substantial change across states since um, Mr. Scott introduced a bill, um, it was 2018 or 2019, um, on actually like starting to phase out uh, subminimum wage. Now that bill hasn't passed, but it provided a roadmap for states to start doing the work. And there's been this really big swing in states starting to do it. And that's fun to see. You're like, I did a thing. This is it. Um, and then I'm also really proud of the work. When I was in the White House, I led the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility executive order, which was one of two massive sweeping executive orders that President Biden signed on day one. And so it was an all agency executive order, again, huge EO, like note to self, not every single agency has to do everything. <laughs> but it was really fun to like work with every agency from, you know, Department of Labor and Commerce and Educate to like really, really, really small agencies with like 10 people. Um, and to really talk about how do you move DEIA, A for accessibility, forward and think about this in a meaningful way and start building their plans. And that was hard, 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 hard work. But it was also some of the most fun work that I did while I was there. You said that disability is more bipartisan. So do you think it's ever a disadvantage that it's grouped in with? Um, D-E-I-A? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it can be. That's why I think it's important to be like, to sometimes separate those things out, actually. Um, I like to say equity, access, and inclusion and just flip it around because that, or drop 
equity, because for some reason, sometimes the word equity is the most like triggering word for friends across the aisle. Don't ask me why. Um, but sometimes just inclusion and access is like the right words to use. And so yeah. whatever semantics it may be, right? Um, and, you know, it's a word game. But at the end of the day, my goal is to make sure that people with disabilities in the U.S. have the same opportunities as non-disabled people in the U.S., have equal pay, and we actually can start to fulfill the outcomes of the ADA. I just think I, we're, we're, we've stagnated for so long. That's where we need to start moving forward. So, yeah. Yeah, I think obviously on, much, yeah. <laughs> obviously on a much larger, smaller scale and maybe not quite as significant, but I, I kind of like the same way in my work with fitness. Like, yeah. I think the biggest issue is that people with disabilities just don't have opportunities mm-hmm. and you can break down all, all the various barriers and facilitators to physical activity for individuals with disabilities. And there's no shortage of literature yeah. on that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, I think, there needs to be more environments and more opportunities. So that's where like, I think my gym has obviously a small local uh, impact in my community, but like the course that we teach, we hope that it leads to other people opening facilities um, like ours. Maybe going back to the subminimum wage comment, um, you've, you've written some about socioeconomic status. I'm just Mm going to look at some of these uh, statistics that you cited. Uh, You wrote a a post for the Century Foundation Mm -hmm. and, uh, you have that 21.6% of disabled people um, are considered poor under the mm-hmm. census's supplemental poverty measure compared to 10% of people without disabilities. Yeah. Uh, on average, p- workers with disabilities are paid 74 cents to the dollar uh, for their non-disabled peers, and that about uh, nearly half of renters with any disability experience housing insecurity. Um, so socioeconomic status is obviously a huge barrier for a lot of individuals with disabilities. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. So my understanding is that a lot of people with disabilities can receive supplemental uh, security income, so SSI, um, but that it places a threshold on how much you can make to qualify. So it essentially disincentivizes working because if you make too much, then you don't qualify. Um, But then I was reading something that you wrote about Medicaid and how you have to um, demonstrate that you work at least 80 hours. Is it a month uh, to qualify for that? So where's this balance between like, incentivizing people with disabilities to work, disincentivizing them to work, and maybe what needs to change within the system to improve their work experience and improve their socioeconomic status? Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of efforts to try to, like, bad efforts to try to put work requirements on a lot of our benefits programs. Um, and so there's been fight against that. But, you know, to the, to the SSI piece, and honestly, to all of this, is one of the things... I hear a lot is like, oh, well, our, our system is broken. Well, it's not really broken. It's actually working exactly as it is, which is to trap disabled people in poverty, <laughs> um, which is really terrible. But, you know, when you have a, a cap on um, how much you can have in savings for SSI, which is, you know, a, a grossly inadequate amount that nobody can possibly live on, then of course the system is working as it should. And when that has been changed or even elevated with inflation, then yeah, the system is working as it should and it is trapping people. And so there's a balance. We need our benefits programs. We need our benefits programs to be realistic about 
helping people and anyone, right? Because I'm going to go broad sweeping with benefits programs here. Because there's also, we can group in SNAP, we can group in Medicaid, we can group in, you know, I mean, there's a lot that are really, really important. And these programs all need to be lifting people up. But then you hit a threshold where someone may want to do more work, right? Let's say some minimum wage, let's say somebody has been sort of trapped in a low, very low wage, but now they want to go out and make some more money. Maybe they might get insurance through their, that works for them through their employer. And that's going to kick them off some of these programs. There needs to be benefits counseling and support to make that transition successfully. And a little sneak preview. Um, I'm working with New America, um, a DC-based think tank, and we have a report that will be coming out in February that actually does a big um, look at sort of the state of states on subminimum wage, comprehensive supports, benefits counseling, and gives a little bit of a ranking and um, and score on how states are doing on this. And you know, as as a, a preview to sort of the results comprehensive supports make a big difference and it can actually help states to make lasting change. So you think, so it's more at the state level than the national level? I mean, the national level, I think would be great to make some change, but Medicaid is going to always be a state driven program. And then a lot of the benefits counseling does go down to the state level. So I think we can drive systems to start making that change. But a lot of it is going to be up to our states to kind of do that. Now, some minimum wage is one thing that can be done at the federal level. We can get that done. We can eliminate that. But at the end of the day, some of the employment initiatives, some of the benefits programs, we can drive states and incentivize states to start making change. But they are going to have to be the real, you know, drivers of actually doing it and and kind of taking that initiative and those incentives to to kind of cross that finish line. Accenture published a report, I believe it was with Disability mm-hmm. In, yeah. about the benefits of hiring a more diverse mm-hmm. workforce. Um, great report. What ha- yeah, what have you found or maybe what did you learn from that report and the work that you do if you're trying to convince a business to be more diverse in their hiring practices or make accessibility improvements, um, kind of what are the key things that you're trying to communicate to them? Yeah, definitely. Well, I, there's, I, Accenture has done, I think two reports maybe there's, and I don't remember which one yeah. it is, but one of them talks about like more disabled people in the workforce actually raises the overall GDP of the country significantly. I mean, it's, it's a big bump, which is incredible. Cause you think about I mean, this is an economic case, honestly, and that's actually one of the things to go to a company with is say, this is this is an economic case for you, right? You are you are not only doing a good thing that feels good, right? But you're actually bringing in an entire population of people that is benefiting the economy. And so this is a driver to the local economy because you're going to have more money in the pockets of people that are now buying your products oftentimes. So you're actually building a customer base as well. And you are, you you have more workers who have shown disabled workers actually have history of being, having higher retention um, and tend to have a lot of other really positive workforce benefits. So there's, some really good economic cases to be made of just hiring disabled workers. Um, it's also a population that right now is underemployed and 
oftentimes has advanced degrees and others. So it's a pot like disabled workers tend to be a population that just are not well skill matched due to place that's not hiring people with disabilities. So you can often find people um, for like unique jobs um, if you actually are willing to open your search and um, and and just honestly make usually free accommodations. Um, that's the big thing companies often are afraid of is accommodations. But I think we know most accommodations are free and the rest are typically are under $500 for a one-time cost. Yeah, I think that's one thing that holds a lot of gyms back. And I've talked about it mm-hmm. on a bunch of different episodes that you just assume that like accessibility is some sweeping drastic overhaul of equipment yeah. and everything. And uh, really, it can be more of a social, emotional and a policy type of um, mm-hmm. modifications. And like you said, just accommodations. How can you contrast? So I read reports that uh, disabled spenders have uh, X amount of money to contribute. So um how do I want to phrase this? So there's there's a lot of consumer spending by people with disabilities, but then yep. you also have the statistics showing that they're lower socioeconomic status. So not that yeah. it has to be one or the not that it has to be right. one or the other, but are and you don't want to group all people with disabilities no. into like one uh, group. But are you portraying to companies that there's this target market that they're not addressing by not? creating a more accessible product? Is that, is that one of the um, like paths or avenues that you would? Yeah, discuss? I mean, definitely. It is true. It's hard when one in four adults in the country is disabled. It's really hard to be like, oh, people with disabilities because everyone's different. I mean, I have chronic illnesses. Most people looking at me wouldn't know I'm disabled, right? And so um, I could mask pretty well most of the time. Um, I mean, wouldn't know that I just did my infusion this morning, right? Like my accommodation is that on certain days I need to work from home, which now I work from all the time, but like, you know, that's like an accommodation I need. Um, but again, I don't represent just as you open the show, like I don't represent all people with disabilities and I would never try to, but that also means somebody who uses a wheelchair doesn't represent me either because our needs are so different. And so I think that's the big thing is thinking about how do you how do companies think about not only universal design but inclusive design, which are two really different things. And for both of those, both like for their retail spaces, for their hiring, for their products, and really thinking about both of those in everything that they're doing. Um, so it's creating accessible policies for their recruitment hiring, retention, and then also for their outward, um, you know, customer base as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, um, maybe you can kind of help me sort out this thought process a little bit. But one thing I one thing I see in the fitness space a lot is that programs for people with disabilities are free. Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe it's my bias from running a for-profit fitness center that incorporates a lot of people with disabilities. And we're also fortunate to be in maybe a higher socioeconomic status area where a lot of my clients are still supported by their families. So can preface it it with that way that uh, we have those advantages and those aren't barriers for a lot of our clients, like the financial and stuff. But um, is there any negative uh, that you could see from this, uh, I guess, trend of programs for people with disabilities all need to be free. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I guess maybe do you have a, any specific like first reaction to I guess that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's there's always two sides to everything, right? And um, I think there's I actually have seen and had a lot of conversations with people about having like sliding scales on almost everything, and so rather than just saying everything is free. It, it's how do you, you know, what, whatever the, the thing that is free may be, it's actually no, you know, it's, it may be like pro bono essentially for some, and then it, it has a cost for others and it might be a slight. And then, so different clients pay different amounts and yeah. that's the reality and honestly of most services anymore. Um, and so actually thinking about it that way. So for somebody who's on and receiving SSI, yeah, it might be free. And because when you have only $2,000 in your pocket, um, you cannot pay for an additional service that you desperately need. But when you are working at a top tech company and maybe you're a VP with a disability, yeah, you might be able to like shell out and pay a little bit, right? So I think finding that balance and also finding what's right is um, is a piece of it. But again, there's going to be multiple thoughts and it just sort of like it's going to depend on the product too. Yeah, I think maybe, and mine's more just the fitness lens, but like maybe yeah. my issue is that like you're just, it's diagnostic based and not needs based. Yes. So like you said, it's a, a sliding scale. So I would prefer to see it be not, here's a program that meets once yep. a week for all everyone with a disability, it's free. Yes. And then you get to the point where it's like, what type of disability do you need? How disabled right. do you have to be to qualify? And that kind of makes all these gray areas. Yes. And like at my gym, price is never going to be a barrier. If someone comes to right. me and they want to train, like we're going to make those You're exceptions. But I would, I would say the dozen people uh, who are on scholarship at our program, most of them don't have disabilities. So it's like, yeah. Um, yeah. and again, different socioeconomic areas, right. you provide what the individual needs, but it's almost like, and issues too strong of a word and I don't mean to be like negative towards it but I sometimes yeah. see stuff stuff that goes viral is sometimes like individual opens gym for people with yes. disabilities that's free and and that stuff's great and it's well intentioned but it almost like marginalizes people with disabilities by like reframing this perspective mm-hmm. of like charity case to a degree yes. so um I, I don't know if I have an right. I, yeah like, I don't know if I have an answer yeah. but it's just something that like it's hard to communicate without sounding negative. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what exactly the answer is, but it's just something that I see and I think about. Yeah, I think that's actually exactly right. Because again, you don't want things to go into like, I don't know if it's okay to say in your podcast, but like inspiration porn. <laughs> yep. you know? Yeah, a lot and, of people have said it. So <laughs> Yeah, okay. But like, that's what I think sometimes things become. And yeah. you don't want that or to be doing it just simply to go viral, which I do think happens all the time. Um, and, or to get the news story. And, you know, at the end of the day, the goal of the ADA is like equal opportunity. Right. And so it should be equal. And, but at the same time, that does mean there's going to need to be exceptions for anyone disability or not. And so I think, I don't know. I do like universal design and the thought of that, of like, what is going to make this accessible, broad term accessible to actually everyone, disability or not? And um, and then how do you then scale that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that 
uh, I think that's an important thing to figure out for all businesses is yeah, kind of how I can do. you provide, like how do you, can you provide a needs-based assistance and yeah. how can you, I guess, vet um, different inquiries and how yeah. can you support clients with different levels. But um, another aspect of barriers and facilitators, I suppose, would be transportation. Um, mm-hmm. You were on a round table. Yeah. Uh, was it last year? Um, yeah. With the Department of Transportation, what what were you guys addressing or what were you kind of working on? Yeah, it was a great roundtable. The vice president was there, um, trans- Department of Transportation, um, a number of folks from, from DOT. And it was really digging into, actually, there were so many people, not everyone even had a chance to speak, um, but it was great to kind of engage with, with a lot of folks. Um, we were really talking about like what, what can and will DOT be doing to move forward many of the issues of the community around accessible, reliable, affordable transportation. Airlines was obviously a top topic. Um, a lot of the other issues didn't get quite as much attention. Now, I will say, I do think it's really important to think about transportation within communities because if you have an accessible or really great gym, if you have an accessible store, but nobody can get to it, <laughs> um, that is a problem. So I think it's important to think about all modes of transportation being accessible, um, sidewalks, neighborhoods, um, sort of like the urban planning view of it. Um, that I think is is a, a really important part of it, not just airlines, um, but airlines has been just in the kind of limelight, I will just say, because of all the problems and the just huge amount of damaged mobility devices. I mean, it is, uh, it's a lot. And so um, I think it's important that DOT is taking some pretty aggressive action there. Um, I would expect we'll continue to see more. So there's talk about future regulations and other actions that they'll be taking. I hope that gets done by the end of this term. I know there's a tight timeline. Um, so more will be done there. But I he has a, um, it's a good agency with a lot, a big agenda ahead of them. And so um, I think they, they have some direction um, that they'll be taking. So I'm excited to see what comes of it. So. I didn't even want to try to say Pete's last name because I knew I was going to butcher Buttigieg. it when I was uh, <laughs> when I was uh, prefacing that uh, that talking point. So, um, yeah. you so your role with the White House was completely new, right? You were the mm-hmm. first one to kind of yeah. uh, occupy that position. How did that come about? Um, how did you? How were you determined to be the person for that role? Um, I don't know to speak to the latter, but I can definitely speak mm. to the first. Um, so mm-hmm. in President Biden's like p- platform when he was candidate Biden, um, and a, in a couple of the other platforms as well, it included actually naming somebody to the Domestic Policy Council to drive disability policy. This was a really top priority of the disability community throughout the campaigns back, you know, in 2020. Um, I had seen that. It's funny because I was on the Hill, so I had to be working on the Hill, I had to be fairly removed from the campaigns. It's a um, obviously legal issue. So I had seen that. Um, I thought it was really cool. I honestly hadn't really given a whole lot of thought. I had a couple people that were like, would you be interested in this position if, you know, it happens? And I was like, yeah, I mean, that'd be cool. But like, I don't think that'll happen. Um, and I loved working for Senator Patty Murray. I mean, she was also just an amazing boss. Um, I'm from the West Coast. 
there's kind of the Patty Murray family, you know, it's, it's a thing. So I really didn't think I'd be leaving the Senate. Um, we had a big agenda. I don't know. COVID was consuming everything. And so it just, I don't know. My mind wasn't actually thinking about going to the admin. Um, then <laughs> came the end of December, early January, um, President Biden won. And I got a call. I think it was like at 10 p.m. one night, maybe like a Thursday night. And it was somebody from the transition team that was like, hey, we are interested in you for this position. Can we do a quick interview right now? Mm -hmm. Sure. Great. Mm -hmm. um, so we had a call. We talked about a few things. Talk about on a whim. Um, and then they were like, great, great, great. Um, we'll be in touch with next steps. So then got a ping and was like, hey, Saturday at 7 p.m., can you do an interview with Ambassador Susan Rice? She's like, sure, great. Um, what do you wear to a 7 p.m. interview? Um, uh, that was a woo, trip. Um, and also Susan Rice, like, woo. Um, and so, yeah, did that. And then um, by Sunday, I had an offer to go work in the White House. Um, and it was like, I think that next week was maybe January 6th. Um, so uh, talk about a whirlwind of a couple weeks. Um, I went and cleaned out my office in the Senate while there were tanks outside. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. How did that transition affect, like, um, your day-to-day -day life, your work? Um, did projects, like, immediately shift directions? Um, I guess, what did you guys start working on once uh, Biden yeah. occupied the presidency? I mean, the nice, like, for Senator Murray stuff was able to just, like, keep rolling. But everything, again, was, like, COVID, COVID, COVID. So, like, some of the big work I had going on there was able to be put, halted and then, like, kept going. I had a Kennedy fellow. Um, and so she was able to, like, keep things moving. Um, so that was all, like, rolling. Um, and so that was good. I... So we, I was remote at the time in the Senate and then stayed remote. So the White House staff, we stayed remote until July, um, unless you were like in the West Wing. Um, and yeah, so we were, I mean, we launched an admin fully remote work. So anyone who says you can't do remote work is wrong. Because um, you can launch an entire admin from remote work. Um, and I mean, start a lot of people talk to the people to the Obama team who formerly had their roles and they got like a roadmap of what to do, how to do it, who to talk to, how to manage the agency they oversaw, etc. But I was standing up an entire new position that was disability policy across the entire domestic policy council, which is every single agency. And you know, this whole new plat like policy platform essentially for the president. So I was starting out a little bit with, you know, trying to figure out what to do. Um, my goal was to first pull together all the different agencies that had disability folks at them and then start expanding. So quickly launched an interagency policy committee on disability and that grew and expanded and still continues today where it's a monthly meeting of agencies talk about disability policy. Um, we had subcommittee meetings, the COVID guidance, 
that actually named long COVID a disability came out of one of those subcommittee meetings. Um, and it was one of the fastest moving cross agency pieces of guidance. Um, so, you know, fast work, um, we went, we went quick and um, handled a lot of stuff. So it was great. I, it was a trip. Um, my health totally crashed, but um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Was that committee predominantly people that are already in government or was it, um, was it leveraging the voice of people with disabilities themselves? Were you bringing in um, a variety and a diverse kind of collection of people? So that committee specifically was agency folks. So like already in the government, um, it did actually have a lot of the staff that identified career and political staff that identified as disabled in the government. Um, and then I also did a lot of meetings, even though I was on the policy side and there's a whole part of the White House that does public outreach, I still did a lot of meetings with um, stakeholders to make sure I was bringing in the perspectives of stakeholders to like represent the voice of the community. So that way I wasn't doing anything that was going to like be completely out of step. I mean, it, it was also hard because when I got named, there were a lot of people that said I wasn't disabled enough to be in that position. There was a lot of like really cruel emails sent, which are now part of the presidential record. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there was, you know, a lot of things said that like, I did not represent enough of the community. And that was a really hard thing to be getting at the very beginning of an administration when you're launching a new position and to just try to like push through it. Um, yeah. How did, how did you receive those and kind of deal with them? Cause I, I don't get uh, emails like that yet. Uh, hopefully maybe ever, but uh, it is one yeah. thing that I'm like very uh, hyper vigilant of is that I don't have a disability and, that's why we start the show by saying yeah. that I'm not intending to speak on behalf of anyone, but like, yeah. I do feel, I do feel like I'm in a somewhat unique position to influence. If we just look at fitness as a whole, like more gyms yeah. to be accessible. So if I just say like, Oh, I don't have a disability. That's not my fight. Um, then it never gets done or, or right. someone else would have to pick it up. So right. it's hard. Like, I guess, how do you be, how can you be an advocate or an ally uh, while also appreciating that you don't have that lived experience. Um, it's something like in my, my LinkedIn feed is just a ton of professionals with disabilities. And yeah. that's where I try, I try to learn from that stuff. But sometimes the posts are always like, can't be about us without us. And I'm, I'm just like, I'm, I'm not trying to be without yes. you, but yes. I'm also trying to accomplish what I can. So yeah. I guess, how do you walk that line between being an advocate um, without infringing upon other yeah. people's experiences. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing is I tried to own my own experience a little bit more and tried to start being more open, which was hard for me because, I mean, I was coming from the perspective of a staffer on the Hill, which you're supposed to be invisible, right? As a staffer on the Hill, you're supposed to be up against the wall, seen, not heard, unless your boss talks to you. You're not, you are on background when you talk to reporters, you are not the public person. So I had people around me in my close circle knew that I had chronic illnesses. And in particular knew in 2019, my health had like really, really crashed. I'd started doing infusions in early 2020. And like, you could visibly see through 2019 to 2020 that like my like you I could not mask as much anymore. And like I was visibly sick. Um, and so 
I tried to start when I stepped into the role in the White House, I tried to start like owning and actually naming that I was part of the community a little bit more. Um, even though that was really hard for me, because again, like I'd never been a person that was like more at the forefront of things. Um, and so the, it was a totally new role to actually like not be on background and be named in articles um, and go through that process. It was almost like an identity crisis a little bit because I had to start like being a human like myself, like find my own voice, um, not just be the voice of all the people I worked for. I still was helping the president, but I still also had to like find out who I was. And always say, I am speaking for myself. I'm speaking for my experiences and then make sure that no matter what I did, I was talking to a lot of other people in the community and work with OPE to bring in all of those perspectives because otherwise it just would have been out of step. Um, I don't, I've definitely learned over the past few years, there's going to be critics. There's going to be criticism. Um, I'm always going to get slammed for something anymore. And the roles I've been in, people don't like me for various reasons. And that is just going to, you know, and then other people do. And like, I like have learned to sort of live with that um, through a lot of like coaching from people who've been in these roles before. So you, you mentioned that you were kind of visibly uh, sick during that time, but yeah. your, your disability is, is predominantly not visible. Yeah. What do you think people get wrong, like etiquette or assumption wise regarding yeah. invisible illnesses. And do you like that term? Cause I do see some people say that they don't like uh, the term invisible illness. I usually use chronic illness. Um, I'm not super particular, but I usually use chronic illness um, or illnesses. Um, Cause I have several. Um, yeah. I think, I think people get wrong that like it's, it's like it's invisible and like, it doesn't exist when I look fine. You know what I mean? Like, rather than I can be, like, actually sick, even if I, like, look okay. And I think there's an assumption that, like, I'm just because I'm out and about and I'm I'm doing things that I'm fine. And, like, in reality, that's actually not. That's pretty rarely the case. I'm pretty good at, like, putting on makeup and doing my hair and, like, putting on nice clothes and getting out and about because I've had to do that for so long. Um, but in reality, like my body can be in not a good place. Um, and I've just learned over time to hide it pretty well. Um, but you know, I went to, um, a holiday thing with a bunch of people, friends from the Hill and, and everything. And the amount of people that came up and sa said, I have not seen this much like color on your face and you looking this good in years. And it's true. My health is actually in a really, really good place right now. And they, they all, I mean, every person I saw actually commented on the difference in how I looked. And so for the first time they saw a noticeable difference. And that was actually really telling to me is the amount of people that really noticed that. Was that one of the reasons why you wanted to leave um, working in government? It is honestly, you know, as much as I love the white house um, and I, I loved working for Susan Rice. I consider her a mentor, a friend. Um, uh, I would, you know, go to the moon for her if she asked me to. Um, and I got to staff President Biden in the Oval. Like, how many people get to do that? I mean, that was, like, incredible. Um, 
he called my name out during an ADA event. I mean, like there's I some really cool. wild experiences I've had that I will write a book someday, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's at the end of the day, like it just, my health couldn't manage it. I mean, I think we all know the white house is physically an old building. It also, the work functions in a very kind of old model of you work until you break. And my body just broke earlier than others. And after 14 months, my doctor had a real conversation with me that um, I was probably going to be hospitalized if I didn't take a break. Yeah, that's that's a tough thing to manage because you've worked so hard to get to where you wanted to be and you want to have the influence that you were in the position to have. Um, Yeah. I, I was reading earlier this week or over the weekends, um, digital accessibility has been something that's been very prominent, um, in my LinkedIn space and various things I've been reading about. Um, and it's funny because it was an article about how like the federal websites are trying to adhere to digital accessibility guidelines. And to me, it's like, Oh, if the government can't even be accessible. Yeah. Like, like how can you expect a business like mine? That's three people. None of us of which have any website design. Like how can you expect us to be fully compliant when at a federal level, they're not even. So like you mentioned, the ADA has come a long way, but mm-hmm. it's, and I know, I don't believe ADA has specific digital um, guidelines. I know that's WCAG. Um, but I guess like what, where would you like to see accessibility kind of like focus on or trend in the in the coming years? Trend yeah. makes it seem like it's transient yeah. and I know it's not transient, but like what, what do you think are yeah. the most pertinent issues? Yeah. Well, I, I am excited to hopefully see the web access rule, which focuses on local and state governments, um, get done. So that's from DOJ. It's a it's regulation. Um, I Because, yeah, federal governments are trying to comply with 508. Um, and, uh, you know, it's state and local. It, having the web access rule would be huge to get them in compliance. And I think it also sets a, that rule, should it be finalized, could set a sort of glide path for small businesses like us, right? And show us like, how can we do it? And also for big tech companies, um, because I do think the next phase would be Title Three, And so that would be everyone um, to come into compliance. Because I do think everything is digital now. I mean, I don't, you know, we all have phones, we all we, we order food off our phones, we order, you know, transportation, we ever you walk in to many places, you know, I, I love a good coffee shop, half of them you go into you actually order off a screen anymore. Um, so if we don't start getting our tech into compliance, um, whether it's a website, or it's an app, we're just, we're, again, talk about an economic case, you're ruling out and eliminating a whole customer base. And so I do think that's important. But I agree, it's actually not easy. Um, I'm not, I I don't really have coding experience when I was making my own website for Unlock Access. I used um, Wave. It's an, it's an, it's a website checker for accessibility. And so like every page I made, I would publish, check it through Wave, go back, fix things, do the next one, publish, check it through Wave, public, you know, and I can't do the coding. So it was just like simply going through the website designer doing it. But 
um, that's a lot of time. And like, not everyone can do that. And, um, and it's tricky too. Cause like, there's just some things that like, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard. So I think, I think tech is sort of the next phase. Um, but I do want to caveat, I do not want the ADA opened. <laughs> mm. Um, I think that should all be done through rulemaking. I think the ADA should be left alone and not touched. Um, and everything should be done through rulemaking because the ADA is a sacred document that should just remain mm. as is. <laughs> When I was more naive to it and starting our website for the nonprofit, like mm-hmm. I paid, I paid to have user way add yeah. digital accessibility overlay. I was like, Oh wow, this is great. It yeah. looks so, it looks so awesome. And they're, they're salespeople, they're marketing people. And then recently level access bought, uh, user way. I, th- yeah. I believe it's level access if I'm correct. Um, and everyone's up in arms, like, oh, like overlays are, are not accessible. Yeah. yeah, they're the worst thing in the world. And level access has 25 years plus of like a prestigious reputation, like promoting digital accessibility. So I'd like to believe or at least give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not acquiring user way just to sell overlays. I assume they identify that it's a solution and they want to be part of, or they identify that's a problem and they want to be part of the solution. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's quite the landscape right now. And in, in my feeds, every, everyone is not too fond of that, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm interested to see kind of how that develops. Yeah. Yeah. I think coding and, and there's, there's a number of startups that are really getting into like supporting, changing coding and helping you know, build on more access. And I'm excited to see where the, that the kind of like startup industry goes on that. Um, because I think that is going to be, um, a really like bringing in a startup to help you is going to be a, a real benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now that you've transitioned out of, uh, government, we, we will talk about the project that you're, you're currently working on. Um, so unlock access. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. So in December, I launched Unlock Access LLC, which is my own uh, consulting firm. Uh, I'm really excited to do this. It was scary to go out on my own. Um, you might have felt the same way when you started your your business, but um, especially for so long, I'd been part of these like you know big entities, being a government and, and and others. But what I really decided is I love conversations with folks about how can I help them on their accessibility learning journey? You know, do they want to, are they at the beginning? Are they just learning how to be accessible? Are they wanting to develop their initial accessibility policies? Are they um, wanting to become a national leader in disability and accessibility? Do they want to develop a policy to kind of lay the foundation of the direction they want to go? Do they want to build a coalition? Do they want to bring folks together to have conversations? Do they want trainings? to really dig in education being my background. I love a good training. Um, so that's the stuff that actually was like really exciting me every day. And as much as I love research and doing that, I just helping others to really like find their path towards the inward reflection or the word customer base of, you know, equity, access and inclusion is what was really exciting to me. So I launched and my focus is really kind of that corporate um, uh, customer base. Um, But I am also talking to some folks in the nonprofit sector as I can help them on their disability policy um, focus as well. Um, And having some conversations and enjoying my clients so far. Yeah. It's a, and 
I I guess I've never really had a a job I taught for a couple of years, but um, where my time was uh, victims too strong, but held victim by a specific company. So now I've I've been self-employed since uh, I started my career, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but it's definitely a different feeling of instead of you being confined by a specific schedule, Mm -hmm. I'm confined, I'm confined by like the influx of responsibilities and possibilities of things that I could be working on. Yeah, it's been really hard for me to uh, turn off, I guess, because I know there's always uh, someone I can connect with or a project I can work on or problem I can try to come up with a solution for versus being an employee and having a specific task at hand. Um, sometimes I am envious of that type of uh, uh, position. So I'll be interested to see uh, how you find the two to compare uh, working on your own versus yeah. uh, working as part of a team. Are, are you going to have a team with Unlock Access or at least initially will it just be yourself? Initially, it'll just be me. I've had incredible outreach asking if I'm hiring. And Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, at some point, potentially, um, but I think just me, I really want to kind of build up my um, clients, especially those first few months. And then, um, and then see if if others, um, you know, I want to expand. Um, But I think for now, just me, but yeah, I am really enjoying the sort of like, I don't have to be glued to a desk just to be glued to a desk. You know, I can, I can do work. I've always been like a seven day work week type of a person where I'm like, I have time on a Saturday. I'll just like crank this out or, but then if I need to go do something in the middle of a work day, then that's okay. You know, I, there's that flexibility is something that I, I'm actually really looking forward to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We wrap up a lot of these episodes with more fitness specific, um, Do you have any thoughts as to what gyms, uh, health clubs, et cetera, can do to be more accessible or inclusive for people with disabilities? Yeah. You know, I think the biggest thing is, again, not being afraid of accessibility. Um, Like we were talking about kind of accommodations and accessibility. It is so much of a belief in all of the people coming through the door are going to be really great either employees or customers. And so make that entrance accessible, make, and and I'm talking about a broad look at that, right? And change the way you view the person coming in to experience your, um, your gym. Think about what are the easy things you can do to make equipment, um, to make an, an accommodation on your equipment or your classes. Um, what's the, or what stigma are, are you facing that is making this difficult and seek out a training for staff. Sometimes that is like the first step. Um, and then moving forward from there, I like to use the curb cut example that curb cuts were created by the ADA. And now everyone uses a curb cut, parent pushing a stroller, you know, delivery person with a dolly traveler with a bag. We just need to start curb cutting everything. Absolutely. That's a, I feel like that's a great way to wrap it up. Um, Kim, thank you. Uh, it was really an honor to talk to you. I was uh, a little astonished when you agreed uh, to this conversation, but I'm very appreciative of it. Um, I hope people that are listening um, found some takeaways from our conversation and are inspired to uh, take action and advocate on behalf of people with disabilities and kind of identify maybe locally in their community where they can start to enact some change. So uh, again, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. 
Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about Adaptex, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptex.org. Until next Monday.